Yeah. One of the things we need to untangle first is what is sex? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty basic question, but no one asks it. We all assume that we know what sex is. So if I were to say to someone, you know, did you have sex last night? They think what I'm asking is like, did he put his penis into her vagina and move around until he climaxed? Like that's mm-hmm. our definition. And that, that is intercourse, right? So, so when we think sex, we think intercourse. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way that the evangelical teaching has been, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have sex in marriage. I mean, evangelicals talk a lot about sex. <laughs> we really, we write a lot of books about it. Um, we do like, you know, you need to have sex, you need to have sex. But what they mean is intercourse. The mm-hmm. problem with that definition is she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head, or she could be lying there in emotional turmoil, or she could even be lying there in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. And so her experience is completely erased by our normal definition of sex. friends and welcome back to the what if project podcast my name is glenn Uh, i'm your host and this is episode number 154 and uh today we're talking to sheila gregoire who wrote a book called the great sex rescue uh we're talking about sex today and uh, we're going to talk in particular about some of the lies that many of us have picked up from the church concerning uh sex and i have to i have to issue a trigger warning before we go into this episode and and i mean that seriously this is one of the first episodes i think i've i've given a trigger warning uh before before we go into the episode because there are some topics that we discuss that might be triggering for you uh depending on your past experience uh we're going to talk about we're going to talk about lust uh, we're going to talk about um, how how lust is oftentimes misdefined by the church. We're going to talk about pornography. Uh, we're going to talk about marital rape. We're going to talk about a lot of heavy things in this episode very quickly because I only had Sheila for about 30, 35 minutes. So we covered a lot of ground uh, very, very quickly. Uh, but I'm excited to share this with you because these... These are important topics. Uh, the topic of sex in the church has just been, has not been handled very well at all. Uh, I speak about that from personal experience in my own uh, upbringing in a private Christian school, uh, even into college and seminary. It just wasn't really talked about, I don't think, in a very healthy and helpful way. And so I really value Sheila's work. You've got to go get this book. You've got to look her up online. Her blog is going to be in the show notes. But she's doing really, really, 
really important work as she's looking to set people free from some of the lies that they've been told, some of the shame that they carry uh, involving what they've been taught about sex. And so really good stuff coming your way. Uh, buckle up. This is, I think this is the first time we've really gone after this topic on the podcast. It's going to be, it's going to be lots of fun. We have some good stuff uh, coming up real quick. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash what if project and buy me a coffee.com slash what if project two places to go to support the show uh, financially. I'll put the link in the show notes, the heretic shop. We got some new t-shirts and hoodies. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Uh, special music today is from my friend Derek Webb. Uh, Derek's doing, he's doing crazy things in the world. I'm actually talking to him. No, actually, by the time this this recording goes out, I talked to him last week. We recorded an episode together. And uh, as I'm recording this right now, we haven't recorded it yet. But I'm, I'm highly anticipating the conversation that we're going to have. It's going to be really, really good. Uh, he used to be one of the, the singers in a prominent Christian band that I used to listen to in high school and college. Uh, now he's out doing his own thing. And uh, he's he's doing this new project called the Jesus Hypothesis that I'm super excited about. And uh, but his music is just unbelievable. It's so good. And so he's given me some some of his songs to put in the episode. So I'm going to do that for you today. Uh, Derek Webb, go look him up on iTunes, Spotify, all the different places where you listen to your music. Uh, download it, share it, pass it around. Uh, leave him some ratings and reviews, and make sure they're good because his music his music is stellar. Is that a word anymore? Do kids, do people use that anymore? I don't know. His music is awesome. So check him out. Uh, Derek Webb. Uh, what else? I want to share something else with you. What, what was I going to share with you? Oh, are you part of the What If Project community on Facebook? If not, uh, what are you doing? You have to get over there. Uh, we have like 250 people in this group and it's awesome. And every once in a while, like once every other month, uh, I drop a, an, an event invite in there for the group members to join me on a Zoom call uh, with one of our podcast guests. Usually they wrote a book. Uh, it's The event is usually free. It's always free. All we ask is that you go and buy the book and come prepared to ask them a question from the book. Uh, this month, we're talking to John Dominic Crossan about his book, Resurrecting Easter. Uh, last month, we talked to Diana Butler Bass. Uh, we've talked to uh, Brian McLaren. And we have over the summer, we're going to talk to a couple more people. It's really fun. And so go in there, go to Facebook, search What If Project Community, uh, ask you a couple questions to get into the group. I'll let you in. Uh, come in, look around, join the discussion, say hello, introduce yourself. And uh, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vastly improve your life being part of this amazing, amazing group. But all of that to say, my friends, uh, this is episode number 154. And that's my conversation with Sheila Gregoire. Enjoy.
everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a very important topic on the menu today, and I've brought onto the show one of my new favorite people to talk to us about it. Uh, I've been following her on Twitter for a while. Her name is Sheila Gregoire, and she wrote a brand new book called The Great Sex Rescue, subtitled The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. So Sheila, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for making time for us. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Yes, thank you. So <laughs> before we get too far into this very big topic, uh, maybe take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and who are you? What do you do? Some of the big pieces of your journey. Okay. So I started in 2008 as a mommy blogger. I had already written a couple of books before then, but I mm. needed to get a platform. So I got online, started blogging, you know, housework, parenting, just mm -hmm. that whole thing that was big back then. Mm. And the more I wrote about sex, the more my traffic grew. So I'm like, okay, I will <laughs> yeah. become the sex person. I have yeah. no problem with that. <laughs> so, so I started writing more and more about sex. I wrote, you know, the good girl's guide to great sex, 31 days to great sex. Um, I did an orgasm course, a libido course. I was, I was churning out all this great stuff, but I found that people still had all these problems. And two years ago, I sat down and I read one of the best selling evangelical marriage books out there called Love and Respect by Emerson mm -hmm. Egridge. Yeah. And I had never really read marriage books before in the Christian world because I was really scared of plagiarizing. Mm. So I just thought, oh, they all talk about Jesus. We must all agree. Right. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I read this thing and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room. And I'm mm. thinking, oh my goodness, this is seriously toxic. Mm. And I sat down with my daughter who works for me um, with another woman who works for me, who's a statistician. And we just decided we were going to do the biggest study that's ever been done of evangelical mm -hmm. women and figure out, is this advice that we're giving actually hurting people? Yeah. And so that's what, that's what turned into the great sex rescue 20,000 women surveyed. So what exactly then, like, is this book attempting to rescue us from like, when we talk about the lies that we've been taught, talk about love and respect, because that's a, that's a big book. I've read it. I know a lot of our listeners have read it. Like, what are some of the lies in that material that we're really pushing up against? Love and respect. Yeah. Let me, let me just summarize the sex chapter in love and respect. First of yeah. all, you need to understand that the sex chapter comes in the part of the book where it's talking about what wives should do to husbands. So there's mm -hmm. nothing about sex in regards to what husbands should do for wives. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so that's how sex is already being framed. Yeah. And then he says, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. Mm. So sex is a need that women don't have, but men do. Mm. Um, his need is for physical release. So he has a need for physical release, just as you have a need for emotional release. Mm. I have no idea what emotional release is. Like I picture Sandra Bullock in the proposal, like <laughs> in the forest with Betty White, like, you know, yelling and stuff, but I have no idea what he means by that, but whatever. Mm. Okay. And then he says that if your husband doesn't get physical release, he's going to come under satanic attack and he could have an affair. Mm. And most affairs are caused by women not having sex and women need to understand men's constant struggle with lust. Mm. And that's the entire chapter. And really what I think that chapter does is it encapsulates the evangelical message about sex for the last 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it may have gone overboard and gone to an extreme, but as we looked at evangelical books, almost all of them said stuff that was really similar. And so many of those messages that he gave mm. were exactly the ones that we found in our survey were really harmful. So you have a quote, actually, I wanted to ask you about that because you have a quote in your book and I'm going to read it real quick for our listeners. 
but you say many Christian marriage books portray sex as primarily a man's need, which you just said a physical one at that. Uh, you say a focus on the family's book, love and respect clearly states the husband has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy without ever mentioning that sex should be about intimacy, not just ejaculation. So it seems like you said that this is like one of the big things that evangelicalism has handed us. And like, it's a very prevalent idea. And I've been taught it numerous times, Bible college, seminary, even went to a, a Christian high school. Uh, that was primarily one of the big topics in the sex ed class. But talk to me a little bit about like more about the problems that this sort of thinking can lead to in a relationship and a marriage. And how can we like begin to untangle this mess. Yeah. One of the things we need to untangle first is what is sex? I mean, it's a, ba it's a pretty basic question, but no one asks it. We all assume that we know what sex is. So yeah. if I were to say to someone, you know, did you have sex last night? They think what I'm asking is like, did he put his penis into her vagina and move around until he climaxed? Like that's mm -hmm. our definition. And that, that is intercourse, right? So, so when we think sex, we think intercourse. Mm -hmm. And that's really the way that, that, the evangelical teaching has been, right? You mm. need to have sex in marriage. I mean, evangelicals talk a lot about sex. We really, we write a lot of books about it. Um, we do like, you know, you need to have sex, you need to have sex, but what they mean is intercourse. The mm. problem with that definition is she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. Mm. or she could be lying there in emotional turmoil, or she could even be lying there in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. And so her experience is completely erased by our normal definition of sex. And it's mm. not even the way the Bible talks about sex. Like if we look at the way the Bible frames it, it isn't framed as one-sided intercourse, never. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, like in, I, we laugh about it, but in Genesis chapter four, we read Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And you you think, oh yeah, God's just embarrassed of the real word, but, but the right. word there to know. Yeah. Right. Like that's what I thought. I remember junior high thinking <laughs> Me that too. was hilarious. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But the Hebrew word there, how to, it's the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he mm -hmm. says, search me and know me, oh God. Mm -hmm. It's this deep longing for total connection and intimacy. And I think that word was used deliberately to tell us that Sex is not just physical. Mm. You know, it's deeply intimate. We know from Song of Solomon that it's also really pleasurable for both. And we know from 1 Corinthians 7 that it's completely and utterly mutual. Mm. So when we're looking at what biblical sex is, you get this picture of something which is pleasurable and intimate and mutual. And yet the way that we often talk about it is it's just a one-sided thing that he needs. She doesn't. It's really only about him. She needs to give it to him so that he doesn't lust. So he doesn't have an affair. So he doesn't watch porn. Mm. And her experience is pretty much missing from the whole thing. And, and then can, we wonder yeah. why we have issues with sex. <laughs> yeah. And that can lead to huge problems. Like if a, if a woman feels like she needs to give her husband sex whenever he wants it. Like if she's for whatever reason, she doesn't want to, she's not able to like that, that can lead to really big problems. I mean, that could lead to like marital rape. I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. Absolutely. And one of the, probably the saddest thing we found in our, in our study is that marital rape is just not talked about 
yeah. in our evangelical books. Mm. Like consent is the one word that is not used. We looked at 13 of the best selling marriage and sex books. And while boundaries in marriage did handle boundaries in the bedroom quite well, it didn't, it didn't have a robust conversation of what consent looked like. Mm. Um, I do think you could get it from that, but there wasn't this robust conversation. So none of the books that we looked at really talked about how, you know, um, if she needs to have sex so that you're not grumpy to her, if mm-hmm. she needs to have sex so that you don't yell at the kids, if she needs to have sex so you don't watch porn, that's not really consent. And no one talks about that. And in fact, they even have stories of marital rape without mentioning that like that. Like his needs, her needs has this one 32-year-old guy saying, complaining that his wife has no libido, saying, I feel like I'm begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. And then they just leave it hanging. Like there's Mm. no discussion that, um, dude, if you feel like you're raping her, you probably are because sex and rape feel very differently and rape is a thing. So you need to stop. Yeah. Like that's just, it's not even there. Mm. I remember I read his, his needs, her needs in college for one of my classes. And I remember, I remember that part. And I remember thinking to myself, like nobody's talking that this isn't right. <laughs> and I remember thinking that was yeah. very odd. Like nobody in the class really brought up that like, this is problematic, but even deep inside, you know, I was feeling that, you know, even though I was in this evangelical setting and this was kind of what was being taught, I was like, this, this isn't right. Yeah. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, um, one of the pieces of the book that struck me the most as a man is the chapter about um, lust. Because for me, mm-hmm. uh, growing up, uh, again, I went to a private Christian school from the fourth through 12th grades, Bible college, seminary topic was up all the time. Everybody's talking about lust. And the definition of lust that I was handed was basically uh, like it's an elaborate sexual fantasy that begins with noticing or seeing a woman. And so the way that I was taught to combat this was very simply to not look at women who aren't, who aren't my wife and do everything <laughs> in my power to not see them. And so lust really became equal to seeing. If I see a woman, I'm lusting. If I notice a woman, lusting. If I think to myself, wow, she's attractive, definitely <laughs> lusting. And so as you can imagine, like that creates a lot of a lot of shame because for a while it felt yeah. like I was going to God daily asking for forgiveness for noticing a girl, thinking a girl was attractive. And I started to see myself as this monster. Like if I don't get this under control, like what's going to happen to me? But in your book, you bring so much clarity, I think, to the topic of of lust. I was wondering if you could share with us some of your perspective on the topic, especially for those like me who maybe are carrying this kind of baggage from their, their upbringing. Yeah. So when Jesus talks about lust, he says, whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. So mm-hmm. there's two deliberate things going on there. First of all, looking is a deliberate action. Mm-hmm. And then looking with lust is a deliberate mindset. So lust is a deliberate action combined with a deliberate mindset. So that means that if you notice a woman has a nice chest because she just walked by you, that is not lust. (laughs) You know, if, um, if you see a woman is beautiful, that is not lust. If you look at a woman even and go, oh my gosh, she's really gorgeous. That is still not lust. (laughs) (laughs) Like lusting, lusting is actively, it's when your mind starts to get engaged and you start to think, hmm, I wonder what she looks like naked or what if she were to do this or what if, Mm -hmm. like as soon as you start imagining something, you're entering into the lust thing. But Mm -hmm. just simply noticing a woman is beautiful is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And 
what I find so interesting is that our whole conversation around this has made women into something that is dangerous to men. Yeah. And what we found is um, when teenage girls are taught this, that men, all men, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. When they get married, they have lower trust in their husbands, even if their husbands don't watch porn. And even if their husbands don't check out other women, Mm. like they are primed to not trust their husbands, even if they were taught this before they even met the dude that they're going to marry. Like it's really quite toxic. And that then causes lower rates of orgasm, lower rates of arousal, all kinds of really bad things. Mm. Um, And then on the men's side, what Mm. you just mentioned, like it causes so much shame. And I think it also causes a hypervigilance, like where you, where you always have to be scanning your environment to make Mm. sure that you don't enter into a danger zone or something. And you see women as dangerous to you. Mm. And and this is the really dehumanizing way of seeing women. Um, even if even if guys choose to bounce your eyes, as every man's battle teaches you to do, so you see a woman, you bounce your eyes away, they present that as something which is respectful. Mm. You know, I'm respecting her by bouncing my eyes. But I'll tell you, when you talk to women, what they say is, when a guy refuses to look at me, that's not respectful. Mm. That's still treating me like an object. The only difference is instead of looking at me, you're avoiding me, but you're still seeing me as a sexual object. Jesus did not choose not to look at women. What Jesus chose to do was to truly see women. Yeah. And that's what we need to get back to. Yeah. When you just choose not to look at somebody, you're choosing not to, you're like almost like erasing their existence pretty much. Exactly. So how do we like, how do we reframe that? Like in the church, like, is there... I mean, I think of like, I think of so many pastors that I know of in the evangelical world. And I think of like their congregations and like, how, how do you even begin? Like as someone, like as a leader, who's maybe trying to rethink this for themselves, like, how do you lead people into a place where they begin to rethink such an emotionally charged topic? Because I think for a lot of people brought up in the church, like this is what they were taught about lust. They were taught Mm -hmm. that verse about Jesus, Mm -hmm. about if you see, you know, pluck your eye out, like, how do we begin to reframe that? At the end of each chapter, we have what we call our rescuing and reframing section where we yes, talk about <laughs> here's yep. the teaching that is used. Now, here's how you can see it in a helpful way and yep. or a healthy way. And what I would do with the lust messages, okay, what we say is all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Mm-hmm. A healthier way and a more accurate way to portray it is something like this. Many people struggle with lust. Mm. Often men more than women, but often women too. And lust is a problem because it dehumanizes people and it reduces them to objects. The way that we defeat lust is by choosing to see people as wholly made in the image of God and as Mm -hmm. being Christ and image bearers. Um, And God's spirit is enough to help you do that this does not have to be a battle that you wage your whole life. So instead of see, instead of not seeing someone, you should be teaching yourself to see the person, but as the person in the image of Christ. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, and again, I, I think with that message and with so many of the messages too, it's just so important not to make it gendered. 
Yeah. Because that's such a toxic thing as well. Um, you know, we talked to so many women who also struggle with lust and mm. increasingly among millennials and generation Z, that idea that men are visual and women aren't, it just isn't true. We know that the, that, that being visually stimulated is something which is largely culturally dependent. And increasingly mm. the MRI studies are showing that this idea that only men are visual is just, it's, it's not empirically true. Mm. And for younger generations, we're seeing women who are just as, as visually stimulated as men are. Um, and so we need to stop doing it, say, saying all of these things in a gendered way, or even the one that's the, the most common is, you know, men are always the one with the higher libido. Hmm. Mm, no, 58% of cases. Yes. Hmm. But 23% they're shared and 19% she has the higher libido. Hmm. So what happens when all of our literature talks about this is a completely gendered thing? Yeah. So I guess as, I guess as science develops too, it's important to go back and rethink a lot of this stuff, the way that we talk about it, because that's, I've always heard that, that all, all men are visually stimulated. It's all men, men struggle with lust. Like it's very, very rarely did I ever hear about the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Shanti Felden, um, who wrote for women only and for men only, she talks about the male brain, you know, how this is a male brain. Well, that's just not scientifically true. Right. And that's what we were trying to do with our yeah. study is like, okay, let's actually do this to scientific standards. You know, we're, we're pursuing peer review now, so we'll get into some academic journals as well, but mm. like, let's, let's do a huge study. Let's do this to academic standards and let's really look at what's happening because so often our marriage and sex advice is based on these outdated and quite frankly, misogynistic notions of, of gender relations. And they're mm. not based on anything that we know is emotionally healthy. In fact, they're, they're, they're exactly the opposite of what we know is emotionally healthy. Mm. Yeah. And that's one good thing I'll say to our listeners that this book, like for me, I'm used to reading, like I read, I think what's that book called sheet music. Was that one? Was that a name? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin Lehman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sheet mm -hmm. music and you know, love and respect, his need, her needs. Like a lot of stuff in there. It was very rarely that there was ever anything scientific, but your book is like filled with, you know, the the results of the different studies that you did. And like you you say something, but then you back it up, not just with opinion, but this is actually what the findings show when we ran this test. Yeah. And we also we didn't only look at our own stuff, we also referenced all like a ton of other yep. academic journals too. Yep. So like, let's just really look at this. We, we shouldn't, I, I think so many times Christians are afraid of science and that's mm. part of the reason that evangelicals <laughs> are in trouble right now. Yeah. We should not be afraid of science. If we truly believe that God is truth, then science should help reveal more stuff about God. Yeah. Like, it shouldn't I, contradict. I don't, I don't get yeah. the fear. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. If there's truth in science, it should be able to reveal what, what God has made true. 100%. Mm -hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the topic of um, modesty. So in high school, again, I went to a private Christian school, the principal would actually patrol the hallways with an index card. And if he found a, a girl <laughs> whose skirt he thought was too short, he would literally take the index card put it on her knee. And if it went above the card, she was given a detention or she was sent home because the idea was that her first skirt was, was too short. It was more than like an inch above her knee. The boys around here are going to stumble. And like, this is something I've heard all throughout high school, like college, even seminary, pastoring churches. Like it's a woman's responsibility to dress modestly. So the men around her don't stumble mm -hmm. the temptation, fall into sin. So talk to me about that. Because again, like raised in this world where I was taught, you know, the Bible, all the Bible verses that apparently support this idea. And now I have a daughter of my own who's four. And so I'm trying to like untangle 
all of this stuff in my head. So uh, help us with that. Yeah. I raised two daughters. They're both married now. And one of them was my co-author. We never talked about modesty like that. I always mm. just said, Hey, you know, dress to respect yourself. Think about the first impression you're making. What impression do you want to make? And they always made good choices and it really wasn't a big deal. Mm. <laughs> I think we're, right. you know, End of story. But, but I, I honestly think that the, the big issue that's going on here is that we're presenting men as these lust monsters who honestly can't help it. Yeah. Like they, they truly cannot help their um uh their sexual sin issues and so the only way to stop men from sinning is for women to change their behavior mm. and one of the um one of the messages that we measured that really had negative out outcomes was this idea that boys will push your sexual boundaries mm-hmm. um when teenage girls believed that their ability to get aroused and to reach orgasm later in marriage um was just it, it just really plummeted Hmm. Um, and what's going on is that girls are taught boys are going to sin. The only thing stopping a boy from sinning or even becoming dangerous towards you is how you act. And so it means that girls have to be hypervigilant. So think about a makeout situation. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're a teenager or you're engaged or whenever you're making out and he's thinking, this is great. This is fun. But what she's thinking is, is he breathing too hard yet? Should mm-hmm. I put the brakes on yet? Are we going too far yet? Is he getting too excited? So she's not really in touch with what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. She's thinking about what he is feeling because she knows she has to put the brakes on. And then when she gets married, she has no idea how to get aroused. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not arguing that I, I, I do actually still believe in a biblical sexual ethic. So I'm not arguing that we need to have major makeout sessions. I'm just sure. saying <laughs> that the way that we talk about this is not healthy. And, mm. you know, what I would say instead of boys will push your sexual boundaries is everybody needs to make their own boundaries for what they want to do, for mm. what they feel is right. But even more importantly, you need to honor the boundaries of the person that you're with mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with sexual feelings and there's nothing wrong with sexual temptation. That's really common in teenagers. And those feelings are not bad, but you need to honor the other person's boundaries. And if you're in a relationship where someone doesn't honor yours, that's a red flag that that relationship is not safe. Yeah. And if the woman, like you you said, if the woman is always on guard against that, against what the, what she thinks or has been taught the man is going to do. And I guess to your point, when you get married, and those guards can go away. It doesn't, you can't just make a mental flip of the switch to make it go away. Right. And also, you know, think about what that's doing to these girls. Like, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old girls are taught that your chest is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and you feel such shame about your body and you feel like boys are somehow just kind of gross. And like sex is kind of disgusting. Mm-hmm. I mean, when my daughter was 11, um, one of her Sunday school teachers told her that she had to stop wearing V-necks because the adult men would look at her chest. Well, we couldn't get her to go to church for several weeks after that, but mm-hmm. like imagine telling an 11 year old that adult men were going to be checking her out you know, it just, it makes girls feel like sex is something really ugly. And so the more that girls are given these messages and women as well, that, that sex is something that men can't control, then the more women feel like sex is a threat to me. It's not something I can really enjoy. Um, And so a lot of these messages that we've given have really stolen sexuality from women, from evangelical Mm -hmm. women. And it has long-term effects into the marriage. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. Even if you believe this stuff when you're a teenager. 
Mm. It, it really does. I think you have that one line in the book that instead of, how do you say it? Instead of preaching from the pulpit that like an 11 year old should not wear a V-neck shirt or whatever, maybe we should be preaching from the pulpit, you know, about pedophilia. <laughs> we should be preaching yeah, from the pulpit about- men shouldn't <laughs> be staring at 11 year olds. Maybe we're preaching the wrong message, right? Yes, 100%. exactly. So uh, last question for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw um, the shooting in Atlanta and uh, I'm going to have all of the facts 100% mm-hmm. accurate, but there was like a young male Baptist and he went into the massage parlor, opened up fire. It later came out that he had a sexual addiction. He had frequented this place and he did this in order to kind of eliminate the source of his temptation. So I've had a lot of people who listen mm-hmm. to the podcast know that I was going to be talking to you. And uh, they reached out to me and said, would you please ask Sheila about this event and to help bring some clarity as to how the different lies that we've believed about sex have kind of perhaps fueled that event. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that what he said kind of summarizes the whole thing that he needed to eliminate the temptations because these women were seen as um, temptations to him. I think what, what did get talked about a little bit, but maybe not quite enough is how much fetishization there is in pornography. Um, like when I heard what he did, I, you know, the first thought I had was, okay, I kind of know what kind of porn he watches. Like, um, <laughs> pornography is not, and I, I know most of your listeners know this, but it, it tends to be degrading. Like when boomers grew up, pornography was just your playboy centerfold. And now pornography is, yeah, it, it, it's very much about power. It's very much mm. about humiliating and degrading and often very violent. Mm. Um, and people tend to eventually, you know, look at more and more degrading things and, and certain races, like certainly with Asians, mm-hmm. um, Asian women uh, are often served in porn. Um, and I think that was, that was part of it as well. And so we just, we need a better conversation about lust and porn in the church because our conversation is not working. And what every man's battle says when it talks about porn is, you know, once he quit cold Turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Mm. So when he quits porn, the wife should just keep having sex to stop him from using porn, which is a total misunderstanding of what pornography addiction is about. Mm. And it also leaves single men like this man totally out. Like if the only, if the only solution we have to porn is have more sex with your wife, then Mm. what, our single guys supposed to do, you know, our solution to porn has to be to understand how the wounds inside you that cause you to look at porn, how those wounds get, um, get deeper. I mean, I heard someone say, uh, that porn allows you to feel like a man without making you act like a man without Mm. requiring you to act like a man. It allows you to feel strong without requiring you to be strong. Mm. And so a lot of guys are turning to porn instead of dealing with the negativity in their own life. Mm. And, uh, and I think, I think that our rhetoric around pornography, which is women are the enemy, you know, women are dangerous. Lust is dangerous. You need to defeat lust as opposed to recognize (laughs) that you are not strong, that you are wounded. You need to deal with that. And Mm. no one else can do that for you. Um, Mm. I think that's missing. Yeah. So when it comes to like, when it comes to pornography, like what you you mentioned, like, you know, the, the, the wound could be, um, you know, wanting to feel like a man without having to act like a man, but what is like the, what are sometimes the, in your findings, the deeper underlying wound that causes that 
that hard like addiction that some people have? So much depends on when you get started. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of like, for first of all, if you see violent integrating pornography when you're 11, 12, 13 years old, a little boy, that is a form of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. right? Like that, that does cause trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and often uh, the porn addiction is a trauma response of the initial trauma. Mm. <laughs> like you're trying to heal the trauma. I mean, it's just, it's all a big mess. It's yeah. really quite terrible. Mm. Um, and this is why parents need to have much more open discussions with their kids about it. And we can't shame kids for seeing it. Um, cause most kids are going to see it. We need to teach them that, Hey, you know, if you ever see this stuff and you probably will come talk to us, cause it is disturbing. We don't want you to have to process that on your own. Um, we're not going to be angry at you. Let's just talk about it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's better. We tend to talk about porn, like a sin, like we always frame it as a sin and we don't. And, and while it is a sin, I think a far healthier way to frame it when we're talking to teenagers and young men is as a social justice issue, mm. because pornography is the biggest driver of sex trafficking. And when you're watching porn, chances are you're watching real people being abused mm. and you are contributing to the demand for child porn, even if you're not watching child porn. Mm. Um, you're, you're by watching what you're watching, whatever you're watching will be done to a child. Mm. So, you know, as you get into kinkier and kinkier stuff in porn, then eventually those things will be asked to, will be done to children. So yeah. you are contributing to that injury. And I think mm. we, we tend to see porn as like this victimless crime. It's not, those yeah. are people. I think that's a really and important point. We need to talk point. about that, but we also, yeah. we also need to have so much empathy for the young teenagers and just teenage boys, but teenage girls as well, who are exposed to this stuff and who just, it's just too much for them to handle at their age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and if porno, if porn addiction start at that age, you know, we need, we need to be able to talk about this better to help these guys. Cause so many think the cure for my porn addiction is marriage. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. Well, yeah, because if you just get married, then the man has a place to do to release himself. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's again, mm-hmm. it goes back to, it's all about the man and not about the, about the woman. But I think that's a really good point that you bring up is that kind of reframing the, the conversation regarding these things at home, because I know like at home, it's very easy, especially for a child that like, comes across porn. And if the child has been raised in the kind of church settings we've been talking about where, you know, sex is bad and all these different things, like the child's going to see that feel ashamed. I can't talk to anybody about it. Then I have to try to process that on his or her own. When in reality, if you create an open environment at home to talk about these things in a safe place, uh, you know, you're not going to be in trouble. We're not going to be mad at you. And we want to talk to you about this so you don't have to process it alone. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. I hope that I hope to create that kind of (laughs) we're hoping to create that kind of atmosphere in our home. That's what my wife and I are trying to do. Well, hey, we're just about (laughs) out of time, but uh, this has been a really helpful conversation. Uh, Thank you again for taking the time to talk to me and uh, thank you for your work. It's, yeah. And anyone can find me. My blog is to love, honor, and vacuum.com. I've got a weekly podcast in the book, you know, Great Sex Rescue. You can find there too. And we've got links to our scorecard for how our evangelical marriage scored, if you're curious about that as well. So yeah, just a lot of stuff at to love, honor, and vacuum.com. Awesome. Well, I'll put all the links to your stuff in the show notes and uh, I'll see you on Twitter. <laughs> see what's up for you next on Twitter. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Sounds Sheila. great. Thank you. <laughs>